The text for our sermon this morning, 2 Samuel 15, we're going to read from verses 13 through the end of the chapter. We'll not read all the verses, the ones that we will read will be up here on the overhead. Now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. And there was Zadok also with all the Levites with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This time we'll call the kids to the front for the children's sermon. Well, let's think about what happened in the Bible story that we just read. David's son, Absalom, had declared himself king. He had lied to the people about his father and made them side with him. David was afraid that war would break out and many people in Jerusalem would be killed. So instead of staying to fight, he gathered up the rest of his family and snuck out of the city. He stopped on the other side of a little stream of water called Kidron. There were a bunch of olive trees here so he could hide. And while he's there, many people came to his aid. More than 600 soldiers came out. Also, the priests came and they brought God's ark with them. They were trying to show everyone that God was with David and that he was not with Absalom. David let the soldiers join him, but he sent the priests and the ark back to Jerusalem. And then he and the people continued their escape by passing over the Mount of Olives. Now, there are some important lessons for us in this story. First, we see how David always, always honored God, even when he was in danger. He never treated God like a lucky charm. His thought was, God is God, and I am his servant. God doesn't work for me, I work for him. And God will use me the way that he wants. And I'm happy with that, because he knows better than I do. God is great, and God is wise, and when we don't understand what is happening in our lives, we must always trust God. David was teaching his people this important lesson when he made the priests take the ark back to Jerusalem. Another beautiful thing that we see in this story is how David saved the people from war by leaving. And he is a picture sign to us of Jesus. You know, just before Jesus was arrested, do you know where he went? He led his disciples across a little stream called Kidron into the same grove of olive trees. And in Jesus' time, it was a garden called Gethsemane. Jesus literally did the same thing that David had done a thousand years earlier. 
One of David's own sons betrayed him and became his enemy. Just like that, one of Jesus' followers, a man named Judas, betrayed Jesus and became his enemy. While Jesus was in the garden praying, Judas came with a bunch of soldiers to arrest Jesus. And when the soldiers got there, Jesus told them, I'm the one you want, so let these men go. He was acting just like David had done. David appeared to be surrendering so that the bad guy, to the bad guy so that his people would be saved. Jesus surrendered to the bad guys so that his people could be saved. Isn't it amazing? Not only was David's life a picture sign of Jesus a thousand years before Jesus was born, but this took place, this happened in the exact same place. Now, the other lesson that we learn here is how sinful it is to cause other people to sin. As you grow older, you're going to hear about what grown-ups call peer pressure. That's when your friends or classmates try to talk you into doing something bad. They might call you names, say you're a chicken, make fun of you because you don't want to do it. Everyone else does it. What? You think you're better than, than us? What? Are you some little saint? Our story shows us how terrible this sin is. All these men who sided with Absalom had been pressured into great sin because Absalom did this to them. He lied about his father. He made fun of him. He lied to his father about serving God. And in reality, he was serving himself. And because Jesus is a picture sign, because David was a picture sign of Jesus, Absalom was an enemy of Jesus, and he was teaching others to join him and fight against Jesus too. Remember this. Whenever anyone tries to talk you into doing something that you know is wrong, they are trying to teach you to fight against Jesus. I want you to pay close attention to the rest of the sermon, and we'll learn more about these things. After we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. O oh, dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it until we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. Well, in our text this morning, David prefigures Christ as he is betrayed by Judas. Since David is only a foreshadowing, there are a few differences, but those differences actually confirm the likeness. There are three features of David's character and behavior that I'd like to draw your attention to. And they are, number one, his humility. He leaves without a fight. He turns the other cheek and he entrusts his soul to God without reservation. Number two, his care for others. He leaves Jerusalem quietly to spare the city war. He chose life as a fugitive rather than to let his subjects suffer. And thirdly, his righteousness. He knew that his cause was just, and that's why he prayed for Ahithophel's destruction. And that is, in fact, our outline. Number one, his humility, that he left the city without a fight. He turned the other cheek. He entrusted his soul to God without reservation. Since David prefigured Christ, what we see in our text this morning shouldn't surprise us. Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. 
David wakes up to find that thousands of men whom he believed loved him had joined a rebellion against him. As David foreshadows Christ, Absalom foreshadows Antichrist. David, like Jesus, is meek and mild. He's not a show-off. David's a sinner, yes, but he's not given to ostentation. Absalom, on the other hand, is all about showmanship. He sits outside the palace gates, slandering David's reputation and tooting his own horn. He hires a team of men to run before his chariot, blowing trumpets. People have to know that he's coming. They have to see the, the long hair flowing in the wind like a shampoo commercial. Absalom is the polar opposite of David. And in that way, Absalom foreshadows Antichrist. Now that prefix anti in Greek, it's Greek and it means to take the place of. It often carries the idea of replacing someone by way of deception. When the New Testament speaks of Antichrist, it isn't referring to someone who fights Christ head on but rather someone who seeks to undermine his rule by pretending to be a substitute for him. And that's quite significant in the light of our text. Absalom doesn't attack David head on. He quietly undermines him by subtlety. David's busy attending to the affairs of the kingdom, and someone from his own household is deceptively worming his way into the place that David occupied in the hearts of the people. A chapter ago, Absalom asked permission to go to Hebron under the pretext of a vow to God that he must fulfill there. Absalom knows that his father has a tender conscience about serving God. He realizes that David would want nothing more than that Absalom serve God faithfully. So Absalom makes a pretense of devotion in order to deceive his father. The New Testament records only two statements by Judas Iscariot. The first, in John 12, he complains that Mary's perfume wasn't sold to raise money for the poor. John tells us that he said this only because he was a thief. He was the treasurer of the disciples and he dipped in the till. He uses pious language to mask his evil intentions. The other statement is in Matthew 26 where he asks, how much money the Jews will pay him to betray Jesus to them. Judas was cold, calculating, greedy, and unscrupulous. He saw a cash cow in the healer from Galilee. Let me hitch my wagon to this star and I'll be a millionaire by the time I'm 40. He uses his position of trust for personal benefit. Isn't this exactly what Absalom has done? Well, gradually... Judas's hopes give way to disappointment. He becomes disillusioned. This man who was going to make me rich not only refuses payment for his miracle cures, apparently he also has a death wish. He grows more and more estranged from Jesus until the dark thought creeps into his heart that if he can't make a fortune off Jesus' life, maybe he can make a quick buck off his death. That dark thought slowly matured into a plan. And since he knew Jesus' personal habits and the places Jesus frequented for rest, he was able to execute the crime under the cover of darkness. In our text, Judas Iscariot is foreshadowed by the unholy duo of Absalom and Ahithophel. Together they work to oust David from his throne. And it is really a foreshadowing of Antichrist. Absalom sets up himself in David's place wins support for his rebellion, and Ahithophel plans the military strategy to make this plan successful. 
But it's more than the characters of the story who foreshadow. The Bible even uses the locations. As David leaves Jerusalem, he and his entourage make a stop to gather their bearings and the, to, to plot the first actual move. And the place where David stops is just across the brook Kidron. It's a shady wooded spot where David and his company could stop without fear of being spotted. Once they leave there, they climb up the Mount of Olives, which was one of Jesus' favorite places. In New Testament times, there was a garden on the other side of Kidron. The garden was called Gethsemane. It was on the east side of Jerusalem between the city and the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane likely belonged to a private individual who was a friend of Jesus and made it available to Jesus whenever he wanted to retire in private. So Jesus came here often. But the most significant event in the New Testament is found in John 18, verse 1. After Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17, he led his disciples across the brook, the brook Kidron into the Garden of Gethsemane. David crosses this brook, weeping as he flees the traitor. Jesus crosses the brook and waits in the garden to be betrayed by the traitor and arrested by the traitor's army. We see David as a type of Christ, but we see also how Christ fulfilled the action of David. The trumpet sounds in Hebron, which was the signal that Absalom reigned as king. Absalom chose Hebron for strategic purposes. David had begun his reign there. After unifying the kingdom, David then moved the capital to Jerusalem. But, so Absalom is playing upon, upon sentiment. Plus, it keeps him out of David's immediate reach should the plan not go as organized as Absalom thinks it is. The trumpet barely sounds, and a messenger comes to David to say, the hearts of the men are after Absalom. The account is so concise that we can only imagine that this is the first that David has heard of any of these evil intentions by his son. And it's equally clear that David is completely unprepared, little wonder. This is an enormous blow, a triple tragedy. First, there's the discovery that the bulk of the people had revolted against him and were actively hastening to drive him from the throne. Second, there's the discovery of the villainy and hypocrisy of his favorite and popular son. And thirdly, there's the discovery that the hearts of the people were with Absalom. As David flees the city, things take a confusing turn. He finds out that he isn't as alone as he thought. There are more than 600 fighting-aged men with him. However, many of these men have brought their families with them. So David isn't going to turn down any help he can get, yet at the same time, his escape is slowed down by the presence of children. In the midst of the confusion, David finds that Zadok the priest is with him and that he's brought the Ark of the Covenant. If the Ark was with David, it would at least give the appearance that God was with David and not with Absalom. And that was certainly true. But David surely remembers how Israel fared when Eli's sons took the ark of God into battle with them. And he tells Zadok, take the ark back to the city. He says, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. What we're considering is David's humility. 
These words show how much David, uh, God was in David's mind during the events of this humiliating day. Everything turned on God's will. It might be that God in His mercy would bring David home to Jerusalem. God's promise to David in 1 Samuel 7 would lead David to believe that this was the likely outcome. But it may also be that God is visiting him for his sin and that this chastening might involve Absalom's success. And if that be the case, all David can say is that he is at God's disposal and he will not resist God's will. William Blakey puts it this way, if he was to be restored, he would be restored without the aid of the ark, and if he was to be destroyed, the ark could not save him. Our text reads, David went up by way of the mount, ascent of the Mount of Olives, and wept as he went up, and he had his head covered, and he went barefoot. The people and all the people were with him, and they were weeping too. The people were weeping because of the great evil of the day. David was weeping because he knew that he well deserved all the distress that had, followed, that had fallen upon him that day. The, the covered head and the bare feet were symbols of humility. They signified David's humble confession that as far as it concerned him, the affliction he endured was less than his sins deserved. David's demeanor is that of one who is stricken and afflicted. Arrogance and showmanship have never been among David's weaknesses. But on this day, he is so meek and lowly that even the poorest subject of the kingdom could not have assumed a more humble posture. David truly feels the words of Psalm 51. It's as if David is saying, Oh, what a sinner I have been! How forgetful of God I have been! How unworthily I have acted toward man. No wonder that God rebukes me and visits me with these troubles. And not only me, but my people too. These kind people who are commiserating with me have been brought into this trouble by me, and it may very well cost them their lives. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, and according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. True repentance is never self-centered. When a person apologizes and then hedges the apology with all sorts of considerations about his situation, that apology is insincere. True repentance for sin admits the guilt and the fairness of the penalty without any appeal to mitigating circumstances. Self is put aside for the sake of the honor of the one or ones offended and injured by the sin. We see this clearly in David. He never utters a word about his own desperate condition. His thoughts are about the honor of God and the safety of his people, which is our second point, David's care for others. An ordinary man would be so distraught under these circumstances that he'd only be thinking about how he could escape the danger. David's not an ordinary man. This is one of the beautiful ways in which he prefigures Christ. David's immediate thought is the safety of those near to him. So he makes the decision to leave Jerusalem. Now this has the appearance of cowardice or defeat. David sacrificed his pride in order to avoid exposing Jerusalem to the sword. Now I want you to think of what Jesus does when Judas led the soldiers over to the brook Kidron and into the garden. Jesus immediately says to the soldiers, if you seek me, let these go their way. John tells us that Jesus said this to fulfill his own promise of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. By fleeing from Jerusalem, 
David prefigures his greater son, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And again, let me stress that we are not reading this into the scriptures. Multiple times, David likens the nation to sheep and his role as king to that of a shepherd. David is taking his life in his own hands to save the sheep, just as he had done when he saved his father's sheep from the lion and the bear. And even then, David was a picture of Christ who laid down his life for the sheep of his father that he had given him. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. David selflessly laid down his own life for his father's sheep. And now here again in our text, David is laying down his life for the sheep. One thinks of the immortal words of Philippians 2. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. David leads this convoy out of Jerusalem. David doesn't hold his crown so tightly that he won't sacrifice for the people. He is willing to lay the crown down, set aside his glory, and live as a servant. Now, it's true in one sense that David's suffering is the outcome of his own sin. But there is a sense in which he is an innocent sufferer in this whole ordeal. And that again demonstrates him as a foreshadowing of Christ. David is God's Messiah, as we put in the title of the sermon, but Messiah with a lowercase m. He is God's anointed, which is what Messiah means. David is suffering because the people whom he has served and defended have forsaken him for an antichrist. Not only has Absalom been a traitor, not only has Ahithophel been a Judas Iscariot, but a large mass of the population has turned on their Messiah with a lowercase m for a murderous Barabbas. And that leads me to one consideration before we come to our final point. Do you remember how Pilate stalled when the Jews brought Jesus to him for judgment? He knew their sly insincerity. By stalling, he gave the priests a, an opportunity to reconsider what they were doing. Pilate made it clear that Jesus had no guilt against any Roman law, and he was giving them an opportunity for second thoughts. But there were no second thoughts in the minds of our Lord's enemies. They rejected Pilate's compromise and insisted that Barabbas be freed. They clamored for the Lord's crucifixion and recklessly took upon themselves the guilt of his death by exclaiming, His blood be on us and on our children. Jesus was not a robber or a murderer. He was one who, quote, went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. He was innocent of any sin against the law of God or man, and yet the Jews hated him and would not rest until he was killed. They hated Christ because he told them the truth. They hated the light because it exposed their love of darkness. They hated Christ because he was righteous and they were wicked, because he was holy and they were unholy, because he testified against sin and they loved their sins. Now, three things that I want to highlight here are these. Number one, the nation choosing Barabbas instead of Jesus prefigured the nation, is prefigured in the nation siding with Absalom over David. And secondly, their names are significant. Do you know that Barabbas means son of the father? 
Even the name of the liberated criminal bore witness to the truth of what was taking place. The Son of the Father was set at liberty, and the eternal Son of God the Father was rejected and slain for sins that were not His. Absalom means my father is peace. Think of David's prayer in Psalm 102, verse 7, where he, or 120, verse 7, where he says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. David's fearlessness and courage to defend his nation procured them a peace that they had never known before. David was for peace. Absalom, contradictory to his own name, was for war. And thirdly, no doctrine is so disbelieved as man's total depravity. Men imagine that if they saw a perfect person, that they would love and, and admire him. David and his greater son Jesus disprove this myth. David was a man after God's own heart. Absalom was a murderous scoundrel. David was a national hero. Absalom was a national disgrace. David was humble. Absalom was arrogant to the nth degree. But the visible church sided with this Antichrist over God's anointed. And this is human nature in its true colors. The unconverted heart hates God, and it will show its hatred whenever it dares and has suitable opportunity. It will persecute God's witnesses. This is why David was chased from Jerusalem. This is why so many of the prophets were killed. This is why the names of the apostles were cast out by the Jews as, as evil. This is why Christians were fed to the lions. This is why Cranmer, Ridley, and Latimer were burnt at the stake. They didn't die for their own sins. They all suffered because they were godly men, and the unconverted hate godly men because they hate God. It should never surprise Christians if they meet with the same treatment that Jesus met with. John tells us, don't be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. It is not because you are imperfect that the world hates you. You don't need to torture your conscience by imagining that if you were only more faultless, everyone would love you. That is a mistake. Remember, there was only one perfect man on earth, and he was not loved. He was hated. It is not the believer's weaknesses that the world hates but his goodness. The world does not hate the remnants of your old nature. It hates the exhibition of the new. The world hated Christ, and the world will hate Christians. Now our third point, his righteousness. Now this manifests itself in two ways. First, David knew that his cause was just. That's why he prayed for the destruction of Ahithophel. And secondly, unlike Absalom, David led no one into sin throughout this whole ordeal. Now the Gospels don't record the words of any of Jesus' daily prayers. Those words are to be found in the Psalms, notably the Psalms that foretell of his sufferings. He both defends his righteousness and denounces the evil of his opponents, and this can be found everywhere in the Psalms. And it's one of the ways the Holy Spirit used David's life as a substrate for the revelations about Christ. When we read David pray for God to confound the counsel of Ahithophel, we are reading Jesus' words against the treason of Judas. Psalm 109, 
is one of the clearest prophecies about Judas Iscariot. The apostles refer to verse 8 of that psalm, let his days be few and let another take his office when they want to elect someone to take Judah's place among the 12. Now I could easily read that whole psalm, but I'm going to limit myself to a few lines which give voice to Christ's prayer against the treason of Judas. When he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let there be no one to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. Now, before you exclaim against this prayer that it sounds harsh and unforgiving, let me remind you that these are the words of Jesus himself. Jesus, who is sinless and perfect, he prayed these words. His cause was right. His cause was just because it was the cause of God's holiness. And in fact, we pray this in essence when we say, Thy kingdom come. We are asking for the destruction of the kingdom of Antichrist, for the fall of all opposition to the rule of David's greater son. More importantly, since this is a prayer of Jesus, we can be sure that it will be answered. You know, in John 11, while he's standing at the grave of Lazarus, Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. You know, the reason why God may not answer our prayers is because possibly they're against his will. Christ, the Son, is one in essence and will with the Father. How could he possibly pray for something at odds with God's will? We may rest assured that God will answer this prayer. God will cut off the memory of them that speak against Christ. God will destroy them and their counsels. That we can be sure of and rejoice in. The gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ's kingdom. Absalom's revolt will end in ruin, prefiguring the fall of all opposition to Christ. All who lift up their heel against him will be eternally destroyed. The curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Now, one final observation, which can be very helpful for us when we find ourselves caught between two sides of a conflict in the church. I said that David didn't involve his followers in sin. Absalom did. Every one of those who shouted, God save the king, had been tempted into sin by Absalom. And Jesus declares, Whoso shall cause one of these little ones which believe in me to stumble, it were better for him that a millstone be tied around his neck and that he be cast into the depth of the sea. And yet it is one of the most common things in the world to put pressure on others to do wrong. A man's conscience is a sacred thing, but every day men are goaded to trifle with it. Men are urged to go against their convictions. And this is a grave sin in the sight of God. If a man is hesitant about something out of concern for his conscience, you had better shut up and back off. If you belittle his hesitance, make jokes about him being overly strict or extreme, if you put pressure on him to violate his conscience because he's being unreasonable, 
You are committing the very sin of Absalom when he turned Israel's hearts against David. And God forbid that any of us ever use our influence to cause a man to violate his conscience. Let us pray.